Join culture creator Ramel Wallace, museum CEO Micah Parson, philanthropist Erwin Jacobs, and urban agriculturist Diane Moss on season two of Stop and Talk, a podcast about the future of the San Diego region. How can we create a vibrant region that celebrates our cultural richness and economic strength? Find out and hear other San Diego experts on Stop and Talk. Discover seasons one and two now at stopandtalkpodcast.com. That's stopandtalkpodcast.com. Yes, I vote because I feel like as an African-American female, like I want my voice to be heard. Um, Conservative values. So I vote very conservative. So I try to vote for candidates that have very conservative viewpoints. Oh, I don't vote anymore now. Um, Just because I don't. um. I vote because it is our right to vote, and I take it seriously. This is San Diego Decides, a podcast by Voice of San Diego. I'm Sarah Libby, and I'm here with my pal, Rai Rivard. Hey, Sarah Libby. Hey. Hey, welcome to the latest episode of the podcast. I'm here with Rai. What's up? Episode three. Number three, The Trace. So in the last few episodes, we've talked about endorsements, we've talked about some ballot measures, the race for mayor, race for city attorney, a couple city council races. When we talk about all these races, there's sort of an assumption already built into the discussion, and that's that people vote or are going to be voting. Or know how to vote. Exactly. Or win. So today, I think we're going to take a step back and talk about voting itself, the act of voting how it works, how the process has changed, and some of the kind of obstacles that can get thrown in your way when you're trying to vote. Um, I feel like this is one of those issues where people might be afraid to talk about it a little bit. They feel like they have to be good civic participants and, you know, patriots who vote, and it can kind of be intimidating if you don't know how the process works or, or how you're supposed to go about registering. But you know what? This is a safe space. Where do I sign up? Where do I go? When do I show up? Do I even need to show up? Who can I vote for? Let's figure it out. All right. So what is your first memory of voting, Rye? I really want to hear this story. So I had a book of the first 41 presidents. That's George H.W. Bush was the 41st president. And it was an illustrated book about uh, if you were a minor president, not that there are any minor presidents, but say Chester A. Arthur or McKinley or Garfield, um, you got like a page. And if you were sort of a major president, let's say Washington, Lincoln, Roosevelt, um, you you got two pages. And uh, I remember my parents going to vote on election day, uh, uh, the the Clinton-Bush matchup. And... um, and there were results, and we found out what they were. And so I decided to draw in, after uh, George H.W. Bush, a, my own picture of uh, William Jefferson Clinton, our 42nd president. Sure. That's so adorable. And I'm also glad to hear, like, this is how um, ridiculously nerdy we are, that we both had our own presidential <laughs> sort of books that we studied as kids. I I was paraded into the front of the classroom to recite all the presidents, which I had learned on my own just for funsies. You know, that's <laughs> what I did in my spare time as a six-year-old. And they were like, hey, kids, look at what Sarah can do. 
Just really birds of a feather. Sometimes I try and visualize that book going back and I'm thinking, what was that that Arthur did? And there's like this, there's a horse somewhere in the picture, but that's all I got. Sure. Yeah. Certainly you remember important facts about Postmaster General Chester Allen Arthur. Come on. (laughs) (laughs) This is what I'm saying. (laughs) So I feel like my first memory of voting is not nearly as uh, twee (laughs) as that. I just remember sort of sitting outside Uh, At the end of cross-country practice at USC, it was my first presidential election, and I was still a registered Oregon voter, Oregon's vote by mail. I was in Los Angeles just filling out that that mail ballot for president and feeling like, this is heavy, man. Here I am. I'm doing it. And I mailed it back. But um, actually, voting by mail is part of what we're going to talk about today. And someone who would like to see more people able to vote by mail is Congresswoman Susan Davis. So uh, until I started studying this this effort that she's been working on for a while, you know, we live in magical California, hashtag best coast. Mm-hmm. Um, it's relatively easy to vote by mail if that's how you choose to do it. But apparently in other states, it's sort of like when you're trying to get out of jury duty and you have to facilitate like a really important excuse, like a doctor's note or my boss is going to fire me if I am on this jury, I guess you have to do that. And, you know, half the states of the country say, I am going to be out of town on election day. Here is my plane itinerary or or what have you. Here's a note from my doctor that says I can't make it to the poll um, just to be able to vote by mail. And so, Susan Davis um, is pushing this effort that would allow people just if they opt to vote by mail, they should be able to do so. And she's introduced this bill multiple times. And we actually have a clip of her introducing it back in 2005 on the floor of the House. So here's a listen at that. A bill to allow any eligible voter to vote by mail in a federal election if he or she chooses to do so. In my home state of California, voters already have this right. California is one of 25 states that already provides this convenient alternative to voting. While I personally love the ritual of going to the polls to vote, I know that getting to the polls on election day is often difficult. And for some, it is impossible. That is why I have introduced a bill that builds upon the growing trend of states to bring the polls to the voters. And that was Congresswoman Davis uh, about more than a decade ago, Um, but she's still pushing the issue, and we've talked to her about it. So um, this is going to be for our next podcast. Um, I'm not sure if you've seen it, but we have a new podcast that's all about the 2016 election. Um, and this latest episode, I think we're going to talk all about voting and voter access. So we were excited to get a chance to talk with you, um, and some of the proposals that you've been working on for a long time. Great. Happy to do that. I think what we're most interested in is the universal right to vote by mail act, which has been in the works for Mm -hmm. a long time and, and pushed several times. Um, so I, I guess, could you just talk about the idea behind it and and what motivated you to work on this? Yeah, I mean, uh, I guess the the beginning of it really came when we were watching some of the returns in actually in Ohio one year and hearing a, a nurse talk about the fact that she couldn't get to the polls on time. And it just seemed quite remarkable that here we are in California and we have universal you know, right to vote, 
and, um, you know, no excuses. And people in other parts of the country just can't do that. It really means that, you know, the, they're, they're quite disenfranchised because anybody who's working, uh, a shift, uh, that just doesn't accommodate that voting, uh, is kind of, you know, out of it. And we've seen just even in the primary, how difficult it is for, for people when when the 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 registrar in an area um, by virtue of the county decides to cut back on their ability to hold voting places open. So if people could vote by mail everywhere without having to have an excuse, and we've seen the kinds of excuses that people are required to give. You know, it's funny if you're. If you actually get sick on election day, you probably didn't know you were going to get sick, which means you probably didn't go to the doctor in order to get a permission slip so you can vote by mail. It just doesn't make a lot of sense. And when you talk to registrars about this who are, you know, in those communities like like we are in San Diego, they, you know, they, they just know that it is, um, you know, they may end up in a drawer somewhere, but people can't really... Uh, follow up with that, and you know, even if people weren't weren't being straightforward about it, it just doesn't make sense. So that's why we've been so involved in trying to do that. And the real concern is that we have communities and, and states like California that I think that are trying hard to be sure that people have access, but in other states, they're doing everything they can to make sure that people actually don't have that kind of access. We're not seeming to be moving forward in a, a way throughout the country. Only a few states. Congresswoman, this is Rye. It's about 50-50 now. Uh, about 25 states have about uh, make it difficult to, to vote by mail. Is that is that Well, about? we have about 20-some now, 20, around 20, 22, I think, that make it, that don't have a um, no excuse absentee voting. So when we hear about, you know, the pushback to measures like this, usually it's all about voter fraud. Well, we have to guard against voter fraud. Is that where objections to bills like this are coming from? Or are there other components that people who are pushing back against bills like yours say, what's their case? Right. Well, I, you know, I think it is funny. I I think that in, in many ways, we're and, and to be honest, as Democrats, really working hard always to be sure uh, people can vote. Some of our colleagues are working hard to, you know, with the idea that somehow they're afraid they're going to vote twice. The the chances of people engaging in fraud during elections is very, very low. They have really not been able to to see anything that that amounts to any kind of organized. Um, voting that's uh, not legitimate, but otherwise, people actually uh, who who perhaps shouldn't be voting um, are are would not would not put themselves in a position um, and to to be you know to be found actually. So it's just it it's been a concern, but we really have not seen any numbers that indicate that it's it's a concern that means that we should make access so much more difficult for people. 
And what's the fiscal component of this? I've seen um, here at the local level with ever efforts to um, have special elections be vote by mail. You know, San Diego is now part of a, a pilot program in which special elections are all mail elections. And the case for mm-hmm. that was really that it's um, it costs less to have people vote by mail than, um, you know, per voter. It costs more when they vote in person. Is that um, the case with this bill or is it is there a financial case to be made? In our universal vote by mail act, no, there's there's really not uh, a cost uh, at all. And what we have to do is, is what's happened in states like Oregon as well, where they actually have gone to an all mail ballot. Now they don't they don't even bring people to the polls. I think people can go perhaps to the registrar if they want to, but it's it, they don't have voting stations throughout the throughout the the state. We think that what we found in, in San Diego here is that people want to vote by mail. About 40% of the people, uh, we've had it greater than that for general elections and for primaries, um, are voting by mail. When we have a special election, of course, then, you know, that's, that's all of, all people are, are voting that way. But the, even, even here, you know, when we have, uh, bills and we're trying to score them, they really don't see a cost factor involved, and especially when you think about what it takes to have voting booths and even the electronics throughout the entire community. Uh, it's so much easier for people to vote by mail. What we've also found, and the registrar has shared this with us, is that for a lot of families sitting you know, down at the, at the kitchen table and taking the time to vote really helps them out. Some people just get you know, a little more nervous uh, in a setting, especially if there are a lot of people and they're lying, as we've seen, and they just prefer the kind of the privacy of being able to vote at home and then being able to, you know, send that ballot in. We also have uh, put forth a bill that uh, that we can track ballots, so people know just they, like they, you know, uh, track a box. Um, on UPS that they can track their ballots as well and they know when they've gotten to the registrar and they know they've been counted. And we were we were watching a clip here of you on, on C-SPAN, well, on the, on the House floor, uh, about 10 years ago, about 2005, introducing this uh, in an earlier time. Has it gotten any more traction over the uh, these long years? <laughs> well, in many ways, uh, I can't say it has. I wish it has. Um, we, we've been unable to get our colleagues to vote by mail, even in California, uh, to to be supportive, uh, to put their name on on uh, on the bill, and I think there's just a lot of pressure not to do that. It's somehow seen as as state rights, but the reality is, and this may have been on the clip that that you saw as well, that you know, Article One, Section Four of the Constitution says Congress may determine the time, place, and manner for the holding of elections. So when you have federal elections, then it's very appropriate that Congress can and should get involved, especially given the disparities that we see about the way people do this. Thank you so much for your time. Is there anything you'd like to add just in general about this election and access to voting? Well, I think the country can learn a lot from California. We've done a pretty good job with this, uh, being efficient uh, at whether people choose to vote by mail or they choose to, to go to the voting booth. I like to go to the voting booth. 
yeah, I like to go. I, you know, it's one of the garages in my neighborhood, and I see people there. And you need to get that sticker. That's right. You get a sticker. But actually, it's funny. Congress is, has been in session for the last number of years on primary days, for example, so that I always have to vote um, by mail on those days anyway. But I think that we need to just find ways of moving forward and enhancing access instead of um, restricting it. And unfortunately, that's what we seem to be seeing. And it's playing out right now. And when you look at what's been happening in primaries across the country in terms of people having to wait so long to vote because they've only, you know, opened up a few voting places, we can we should be worried about what's going to happen in the election, whether people are going to be really prepared to handle um, the number of people who want to vote. And it, it shouldn't have to take, you know, two or three hours to vote. A half hour is probably the max that anybody should have to wait in line. And that was Congresswoman Davis, and that's a sort of federal perspective, and we wanted to talk to uh, somebody at the state level to see what's going on in California. So we talked to Vince Hall. He's the executive director of the Future of California Elections, which is all about uh, modernizing elections in California. Can you tell us, Vince, first, just before we get into it, sort of what your group does and and what its priorities are? Absolutely. Uh, Future California Elections was formed about five years ago with the intention of creating a convening space for all the different groups in California that are working to improve participation in elections, to bring a a better election system to Californians using technology, to make information more readily available, to help people register to vote in new and innovative ways, to help people cast ballots in new ways. So the organization has, has really been a coordinating point for many organizations that you've probably already heard of, like the League of Women Voters and Common Cause and CalPERG and California Forward and uh, California Voter Foundation and and MALDEF and Naleo and more. So there are about 17 members at this point, and the membership actually includes the registrars of voters through their state association. So everyone involved in the process is meeting together, working together, and in some cases creating a shared legislative agenda uh, to improve elections. So one of the things that's been really fun to watch over the last few weeks is everyone kind of freak out over this realization that California's presidential primary is actually going to matter for once since we're kind of at the back end. (laughs) Um, I think it's been kind of hilarious to see everyone like, hey, we're this enormous state and we're finally relevant. We matter. (laughs) But it's not necessarily as easy as just showing up on election day and voting, depending on how you're registered. So can you explain a little bit of kind of what kind of advanced planning goes into that and who can vote for president and, and how that all works? Sure. And I think it's a really important point because there is such a focus on uh, the presidential primaries from both parties uh, are getting massive amounts of media coverage and lots of Californians, lots of San Diegans are thinking, uh, I'm looking forward to June 7th when my voice will not only uh, be heard, but it will actually matter (laughs) and will have an impact uh, in whichever primary one chooses uh, to vote. But you're absolutely right. It does take some advanced planning because primaries are really uh, a hybrid of a, of, a, of a process that is controlled partly by the government and partly by the political parties themselves. And so if a voter is registered in the party whose primary they wish to participate in and their registration address is up to date and what have you, then they're fine. They don't need to do anything. But if they are registered into party A and they want to vote in the primary of party B, they must re-register by May 23rd in order to do that. On May 23rd, everybody's registration status is locked in for the June 7th primary and no further changes can be processed. There are 
even more uh, particular considerations if you are a uh, so-called non no party preference voter. So, so like an independent. And they often do call themselves independents. Um, and there are many in San Diego. There are many, many in San Diego. The city of San Diego is actually 30% uh, registration as no party preference. And uh, San Diego County as a whole is 27%. So almost a third of the voters are no party preference voters. And there's another percentage of voters who are registered into the American Independent Party. And some of them are legitimate members of that party who share that party's ideology. But frankly, some of them are people who want to be independent and think that's the appropriate box to check. So we always wonder how much of the AIP's registration is truly people who subscribe to the orthodoxy <laughs> of the party. Um, but if you if you consider yourself independent, meaning you, you, you typically people say, well, I'm not a Democrat or a Republican or a minor party member. I'm an independent. The only way to register that way is no party preference. And about a th almost a third of, of San Diegans are. So for those voters, if, if they wish to vote in the Democratic primary, then they are allowed to request at the polling place or for uh, via mail a Democratic Party ballot. If they want to vote in the Republican primary, uh, they actually have to re-register as a Republican by May 23rd. Now, the election officials are catching some flack about this, and there's some accusations that the election officials are favoring one party's primary. Nothing could be further from the truth. These are the rules of the parties themselves. So the Democratic Party, the Libertarian Party, uh, and ironically, the American Independent Party have uh, already uh, voted to allow no party preference voters to vote in their primary. The Republican Party um, voted to only allow registered Republicans to vote in their primary. And, you know, there's arguments back and forth, and I can see both sides of the argument, but that's just the reality. So if you're a no party preference voter and you want to vote in the Democratic primary, you have to make a point of asking for that ballot. If you want to vote in the Republican primary, you've got until May 23rd to re-register as a Republican. And so if I'm a, if I'm a small I independent and I want to try to block Trump, say, I, uh, I need to do something. What do I do? I go to the courthouse. I send something in by mail. What, what am I doing? So, yes, you, 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 in that scenario, you wanted to register as a Republican by May 23rd. You can do that in a whole variety of ways. Uh, there is a website, uh, registertovote.ca.gov is an online solution for that. And that works right up until 11.59 p.m. on uh, May 23rd. You can go to sdvote.com, which is the website of our county registrar of voters, Michael Vu, and there are options to register there. There are voter registration forms available in a variety of uh, places. Um, and on the Secretary of State's website, there's even a text solution, and there are other options uh, for, for re-registering. So it's become so easy to register to vote that we really don't have any excuses left. Uh, and all of us uh, just need to know the rules because I suspect that on June 7th, there are going to be angry voters at polling places who are saying, I wanted to vote for this candidate. I wanted to vote for that candidate. And now you're telling me I'm not allowed to do so. And that is because of the complexity of the rules that affect primaries. In November for the general election, it's a whole different ballgame. Every qualified candidate will be on every voter's ballot, and you simply just have to make sure that your registration is up to date with your current address, et cetera. So you mentioned all the different ways that you can register to vote now, even texting. I didn't know that was an option. Um, can you give us sort of just a rundown um, of the changes that have been made to voting um, over the last couple of years and what you think the biggest ones are and, and what you'd still like to see happen? Sure. Um, you know, the voting system is, is incrementally getting better. Um, it is 
frankly, still largely run the way it was run in the 1950s. But to give you one example of a recent enhancement, uh, under the old rules, if you treated your ballot like you treat your tax return, that is, I mailed it on April 15th, it's timely filed. Uh, if you treated your ballot that way and you mailed it on election day, it didn't get counted because the rule was it had to be received by the election office by the close of polls, 8 p.m. on election day. So a law was passed two years ago, which adds a three-day buffer to that. So if your ballot is postmarked by election day and received by your county registrar of voters within three days of election day, you're in great shape. Your ballot's going to get counted. There's not going to be a problem. So there were literally thousands and thousands of ballots across the state of California that were not being counted because the voters were treating it analogously to their tax return and mailing it too late to be counted by election day. So that's an important enhancement. We also, because of uh, San Diego Assemblywoman uh, Lorena Gonzalez's legislation, we have created the first automated voter registration system in California. There are about six and a half million people in our state who are eligible to vote and aren't registered. And of course, you can't vote unless you're registered. So registration is uh, for six and a half million Californians at this point, a barrier. So uh, Assemblywoman Gonzalez's bill will create through the DMV a process where every time somebody appears at a DMV office to conduct a transaction, they will mandatorily have to go through a voter registration prompt. They can choose not to register. You still have that right, but you're at least going to be forced to make the decision to not be registered as opposed to simply never getting around to it. And when does that go into effect? Is that going to be a factor in the November election or is this kind of happening after the fact? It will be after the 2016 elections are concluded. We expect that it will be uh, begin sometime next next summer at the latest. And, you know, I, I'm not a big fan of the post office. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I always forget to check my mail. Um, and I do pretty much everything online now. When can I, can I vote online? When's that going to happen? Well, online voting is a very controversial topic. And of course, every single day we open our newspapers uh, and uh, online, of course, to find that there are new hacks into supposedly secure systems, whether it's government systems, defense department, corporations, Target, Home Depot, you name it, and, and they've all been hacked. And of course, most recently, today, uh, you know, this week we've learned that the uh, government has figured out how to hack through the iPhone's uh, very secure uh, encryption methodology uh, without any help from Apple. So they say. So, so they say, right, we'll see. But the, the bottom line is that the basic architecture of the internet, the basic infrastructure of the internet has not shown itself yet to be secure enough to conduct our elections. And none of us would be, we would all love to vote online, how convenient, how easy, but none of us want to wonder uh, or learn after an election that the election had been hacked because there's no way, there's no audit trail with which to go back and find the errors and to correct them. With paper ballots, you always have uh, accountability. You have an audit system that allows you to essentially recreate the election precinct by precinct based on demonstrable physical evidence of what happened. But when you're talking about digits in a computer, you don't have that permanent record, that permanent accountability with the way the internet as is designed currently functions. And so uh, what if I'm trying to hack the, the the election myself one vote always sure. counts right as, as Rye does <laughs> and so I I get my mail-in ballot I'm a I'm a permanent mail-in voter and uh, I decide I'm going to send it in a couple of days before the election I'm going to show it show up at the polls see if I can vote again what's gonna what's gonna happen to me well um, and I'm gonna I'm gonna answer that really directly but I have to say at the outset that. That form of fraud, voter impersonation, is right. exceedingly rare. Uh, there have been many, many studies done uh, to look at the 
uh, frequency of voter impersonation fraud, and, and it's just not a systematic problem with American elections. It's just really a rare outlier. Um, however, if, if, if you look at the things that are being done to make elections more convenient, they are also things that make elections more secure. So when you vote in a 1950s-style precinct polling place in the neighborhood garage <laughs> with the dog tied up to the door and the you know cute little card table holding the voter rolls, um, no, no signature on those poll books is verified against the voter's uh, signature on file unless, obviously, there's some investigation of some allegation. But for the most part, they don't get verified. When you vote by mail, which is the method of choice for a rapidly growing percentage of Californians, 100% of the signatures are verified against the signature on record from the voter registration card. So it's just an inherently more secure system. So to your point, if you send in a mail ballot and you also vote at a polling place, the, the, the fact that you requested a mail ballot, if you did it early enough, will be noted on the rolls at the, at the polling place. So the first thing they're going to say is, hey, can you surrender the, ma the ballot we happen to mail to your house? Right. And if you say, I don't know what you're talking about, you're going to end up voting what's called a provisional ballot, which means they'll let you vote, but they're going to put it in a sealed envelope. They're going to take notes on what the, the, the cause of the question was. And then um, an official at the county office is going to do research to make sure you didn't vote twice because they'll have a record of that. And if the if the dog scares me away, do I have to vote at the polling place closest <laughs> to me, or can I go can I go near my office, or uh, do I have to vote where they they told me to vote in the first place? Yes, and I, I've met that dog. <laughs> it's a little <laughs> scary, but um, the the answer is that you are supposed to vote at the polling place uh, that is printed on the back of your sample ballot that is your home precinct. If you go vote at a different polling place and you um, make it clear that you're not going to go to your home precinct, they will uh, give you a, a, a ballot. It will be put in a provisional envelope. And any votes that you cast at this other polling place that were not available to you had you voted in the precinct you were supposed to vote in will be redacted from your ballot. So they'll, they'll count your vote for president, but they're not going to count your vote for Encinitas City Council if you were supposed to be voting in Chula Vista. Um, this is a, is, is a bad idea <laughs> to, to go vote in a different polling place because your vote doesn't get counted until days or maybe even weeks after the election. It's subject to adjudication. It might not be counted at all if there's irregularities associated with it. So we really encourage people to follow the instructions of the registrar of voter and vote in the home precinct to which they are assigned. Now, the world's changing because one of the major pieces of legislation in the legislature right now would create what are called vote centers, which is a, an evolution of the traditional polling place to a computerized center where any ballot in the county can be generated at any vote center in the county. So if you go to college at San Diego State, you live in National City, you drop the kids at daycare in Encinitas, and you like to grocery shop in Vista, there's going to be you know, four or five different options for you in terms of vote centers that you can have an in-person voting experience. And if I may just amend quickly my answer about voting at the wrong polling place, if you're not registered in the county that you are showing up to vote at, you're going to be told you can't vote here. So I can't go to L.A. and vote, but I could go if I'm living in North Park to, to La Jolla and, and, and maybe get, get something in. You might get a few votes counted off your ballot if there's no other irregularities. So I just want to recount. Rye is afraid of the post office. He's afraid of dogs, and he's afraid of voting in Los Angeles. I think he has. It must be hard. It must be tough. He's got his democracy phobia. 
<laughs> so we um, have talked to Congresswoman Susan Davis, who has been pushing this effort to um, kind of expand access to voting by mail um, in states, unlike California, where they do make it hard. Do you see, as groups like yours push for more access, do you see it kind of going the way of more people voting by mail? Or do you think the answer is in, um, you know, these more regional centers where it's easier to go from work or from school? Or is it kind of a combination of the two? It's, it's definitely a combination of the two. To a certain extent, the voters are making this choice themselves. I mean, it's sort of like the advent of commercial aviation and people were saying, are people going to still ride the trains? You know, should we force people to do the other? I mean, the, 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 the customers are choosing uh, what to purchase here. And in this sense, they are opting to participate in elections by receiving a ballot in the mail at percentages that are higher than they've ever been in the history of mail voting. And there, there's some policy reasons for that. When Governor Davis was governor, he signed a law that allowed people to opt to a permanent vote-by-mail status for no reason other than personal preference. Prior to that, you actually had to have some disability or inherently uh, permanent reason for being a permanent vote-by-mail. But now we view it as a convenience to the voter. So, by the way, just because you receive the ballot in the mail doesn't mean that you return the ballot by mail. So probably the fastest growing approach in California is receive it by mail, but return it in person. And that that is a very sizable chunk of voters. So we talk about, quote, vote by mail, unquote. We're kind of lumping two different methodologies into one thing. But you're, you're absolutely right. Not only are in some places up to 60 or 70 percent of the voters getting a ballot in the mail, um, they're, they're, they, are, they are looking for a more robust uh, vote in-person voting experience. And we have voters, um, you know, in, in California, there are many languages covered by the Federal Voting Rights Act. So uh, the registrar, the registration site for the Secretary of State to register to vote has uh, 10 different languages available to it. And, and uh, getting materials and getting a voting experience that is competently presented to people for whom English is not their primary language is something that can often be accomplished by mail, but sometimes it's better accomplished using technology at a vote center. Uh, voters with disabilities who need special technology to cast a confidential, secure ballot without assistance from somebody who can see how they're voting, that sometimes is best achieved uh, using technology at a polling place. So um, the solution in Senate Bill 450 that the state legislature is considering this year, the solution that's been implemented in Colorado is a hybrid system that incorporates the, the best of a modernized polling place with the most convenient vote-by-mail and ballot drop-off options. We talked about uh, if I'm an independent, small-I independent, and I wanted to vote in the Republican primary, what I would do. If I'm a Democrat and I'm voting by mail and I'm a small-I independent, how do, I, how do they know to send me a, a ballot for the Democratic Party, or do I have to, I have to make sure that I ask them, or what happens? Now, you know, the no party preference voter walks into the polling place, and they have to ask for the Democratic ballot. So if, in your scenario, that person is already... Uh, a permanent vote-by-mail voter, so they're going to get a ballot in the mail, they should have, within the last two to three weeks, received a letter or a postcard from the Registrar of Voters saying, essentially, hey, you're a vote-by-mail voter. We're going to mail you a no-party preference ballot for the June 7th primary. But before we do that, if you want to request one of these three political parties' ballots, the Democratic, American Independent, or Libertarian parties, they're allowing you to vote in their primary. If you want that party primary ballot, let us know by calling this phone number, returning this letter, and we will, instead of sending you the no party preference presidential ballot, which has no presidential race on it at all, mm -hmm. we will send you the ballot of the 
political party whose whose primary you chose to vote in, uh, as long as it's Democratic, American, Independent, or Libertarian. I mean, if it's if it's anything other than those three, the letter will advise you that you actually have to re-register as a member of the political party in order to vote in that primary. So if I'm a vote by mail independent, I, I really need to be on my on my toes. I need to either decide to register as a Republican before May 28th, or I need to send a letter, send a little postcard and say, hey, I want to vote in the Democratic primary, send me a ballot. And I'm not pointing any fingers here, but if you screw this up, there's ways to fix it. <laughs> um, you know, if you if you uh, forget to tell them that you really wanted uh, that party's primary ballot, um, really up until uh, election day, you could you could go to the registrar voters office or satellite office. Um, you could surrender your no party preference ballot that they sent you in the mail and ask that it be substituted with the the primary ballot that you're eligible to get. Um, as you know, as long as it's one of the three parties that are open to you, lowercase uh, independence. So let's talk about the voter reform that everyone wants to know about. We've just been beating around the bush up until now. Can I take a ballot selfie? And if not, when will that be able to happen? What are the rules? <laughs> this is really what I need to know. This is this is the most critical stuff. I'm glad we saved the important stuff for last. Um, well, you know, technically there are ballot privacy laws and it seems silly, right? Because we take selfies just about everywhere else. I don't know about you. Else, you know? It's a very serious issue to me. <laughs> Did it happen? Did you vote? How will anyone no... know if I voted if there's no Instagram of it? Right. right. Well, and, and of course, the, the on the serious side, so the, the question is, how will someone know not know how you voted uh, if you don't take a selfie? So, you know, the, 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 there are examples of coercion in elections. And there are coercions, unfortunately, within families, there are coercions within employers, there are coercions within all kinds of uh, social relationships. And so there's there's good thinking behind the idea that you should never be allowed to take a photo of your ballot because you don't know who's doing that volitionally versus who has been coerced into taking a picture so that someone else's agenda is advanced through their vote. How am I going to get my whiskey when I come out of the polling place <laughs> if I don't have my selfie? Right, right. Right. Right, right. So you can you, you you can imagine Scott Lewis figuring out which employees have not posted their selfie of their ballot. Uh, you know, I'm just kidding, Scott. Um, but it is you know. So there there's some serious thinking, but there is legislation proposed that would allow that would essentially legalize ballot selfies and allow people to uh, to to take those photos. Um, so it's 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 an ongoing uh, debate, but it's not as black and it's not as uh, no brainer as it seems at first blush. Just have to settle for that sticker. Darn. It's, pretty, it's a pretty good sticker. And it's available in multiple languages. Vince, thank you so much. Is there anything you want to add about how we should vote or what's next in voting? Well, my organization, of course, is uh, completely nonpartisan, but I just want to make a really uh, strong, desperate pitch for everyone in your listening audience, whether they're conservative, liberal, All right down the 14. middle. People. Please. Oh, we have more than that. Really <laughs> but it's really, really important. And, you know, just to share with you that in in 2014, the voter participation rate in California was so bad that the average voter was older than the average Californian's parents. So it was really a grandparent electorate. And uh, in, 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 in our state in that year, an 18 or 19 year old was more likely to get arrested than to vote in a statewide election. That's that's from uh, my friend Paul Mitchell uh, with Political Data, who, who is the data guru of California politics. Wow. And these are pretty scary uh, statistics. And so, I mean, people from their mid-30s and below were just virtually non-existent um, in the election. And we had a 42 percent uh, turnout uh, of, of registered voters. It, that's actually only about 21 percent of 
eligible voters because uh, not only do we have non-participating people, but we have non-registered people. So these numbers are really terrible. And the fact that you don't vote doesn't mean that you haven't voted. A non-vote mathematically is simply awarding uh, power to those who oppose your views. So mathematically, it is easier to achieve a majority of anything when the other side has people not participating. And so we have to dispel this notion that just because you don't vote, you don't live in a democracy. We still live in a democracy. There was a robust, enthusiastic debate uh, by, 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 the, by the folks who wrote our system of government, our constitution, as to whether ordinary people should be entrusted with this responsibility. And there are many Californians and many people in our community today who are doing everything within their power to say that that debate was wrongly decided, that I, as a normal person, should not have this responsibility. And some of our candidates are, are chipping in, too. And doing their best, right. Yes. So, but, uh, you know, the, the, the power in politics of special interests, of big money, fills a vacuum that's created by the absence of ordinary people from the process. So I appeal to everybody to please, please take this seriously. This is a bedrock uh, you know, foundation of our government. This is something that uh, many, many tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Americans have given their lives to protect and to make possible. And uh, you can honor them and you can improve our government by participating in elections, no matter what your perspective is. But apathy, disengagement, disillusionment is a cancer that is going to really uh, cause serious problems down the road. So we've been doing the rundown on voting, but I wanted to make sure and leave some time for our beloved segment, Crazy Ballot Initiatives. Crazy. So I want to caveat why I'm labeling this proposal crazy. Um, if you've covered education at all, you know that the issue of charter schools can be really controversial and ignite a lot of passion. So I want to try and insulate myself from some blowback here, let's be honest. So over the last year or so, we've covered a lot of attempts at changing the education system, really incremental things like changing teacher evaluations, changing teacher tenure. And those proposals basically go nowhere. I'm talking, again, like really incremental changes to the system. And so the reason I think this is so crazy is because it would just scrap the system altogether, just a wholesale reimagining of the way the public education system is set up. So that's why I think this is crazy. I'm not necessarily weighing in on the merits of the proposal, but this is a proposed ballot initiative that would eliminate all charter schools. They're all just, of them. They're just gone. Out of the picture completely. So yeah. if you're in one, it's closing down. No more charter schools. Let me read from the um, initiative statute language. Requires charter schools to convert to traditional public schools or close at local schools' discretion. Requires charter schools to return all unencumbered public funds to the state and to transfer all real property purchased with public funds to their local school districts. So I actually spoke with somebody who's involved in this effort um, locally trying to get this onto the ballot. She's an activist from Escondido. Her name is Nina Deerfield, and she's gathering signatures in San Diego and around Southern California to try and get this onto the ballot. So here's a little snippet of the conversation that we had about why she thinks this measure is worthwhile. We're not wanting to get rid of any schools. I mean, that's not the purpose of this. The purpose is to change them. If they're going to be a public school and take taxpayer dollars, they need to be under the auspices of the, the elected board. 
that's it. And so they would go back to being public. And if anybody wants to keep teaching, you know, very extreme right-wing politics or personal religious choices, then they could become private schools. You know, so there, there it goes. She's again. She's from Escondido, and she talks about an experience she had where she went to a, a charter school, high school graduation, um, and was asked to pray several times during the ceremony, and that kind of kickstarted, you know, this activism uh, where she doesn't believe that that charter schools are appropriate and that they should just all be converted into regular public schools. And you know, there are some states that are still trying to decide if they want charter schools in the first place. And, you know, one of the things that the particularly unions will argue is that we shouldn't be diverting public money from a publicly overseen system uh, to something which proponents of charter schools say, you know, this is a way to step outside what they consider to be a broken education system and try something new without the sort of oversight that they believe has has made schools um, not achieve for their students what uh, they think they can on their own or, or with a little more independence. Yeah. So again, it's pretty hot, controversial issue. Um, but I just, again, I think it's crazy to think that while lawmakers are struggling to make these smaller, smaller changes all the time that we would just kind of throw out the system altogether. But who knows? They're working to get it onto the ballot and we shall see what happens. All right, right. Let's talk about our favorite things that happened this week. Tell me what your favorite thing is. This was something that happened to me a while ago, uh, but I was thinking about it talking to Vince Hall. Uh, there's a story I used to cover politics in West Virginia, and there's a story uh, that happens in Southern West Virginia where there's been allegations and and, and really was some voter fraud uh, over the years, and and some you know allegations of buying elections and all the all the stuff you'd imagine, and with machine politics. And there was a story that went around, and it's about uh, a young man, a boy, and his father from a prominent political family. Not sure if this is true, but they're walking around a graveyard one day, and they're writing down names on the tombstone. And the boy says, Dad, can we, uh, can we leave now? And the father says, No, son. The, uh, the other half of the graveyard has just as much to right to vote as the half that we've already written down their names on. Oh, boy. And um, that's that's the right to vote. West Virginia, man, what's going on? <laughs> but a very thematic, appropriate story. I love it. So my favorite thing this week, I'm really excited about this. You guys have been waiting for a long time to roll this out. So I have a clip that I'd like to play that kind of kicks this off. Let's hear it. So this is a song that's on the radio right now. It's a new jam by an artist named Zendaya. She's part of Taylor Swift's squad. Really hot right now. Ah. But um, if you caught it, that song includes heavily a uh, clip from TLC's Creep. So my favorite thing this week and always is the return of the 90s. Um, It's just a glorious renaissance right now. You've got... O.J. Simpson in the news, you've got the Clintons on the campaign trail, and we have new episodes of Full House. What a time to be alive. Again. Again. It's happening 
for the second time and I'm just really happy about it. So that's how I wanted to close out the week. You've been listening to San Diego Decides, Voice of San Diego's 2016 election podcast. And as a reminder, today marks the first day of our spring campaign to raise $100,000. If you like the work we do or enjoy listening to this podcast, please consider donating today. And to do so, you want to go to voiceofsandiego.org slash donate. And here's a message from Voice of San Diego board member Cynthia Morgan-Reed. I'm Cynthia Morgan-Reed, a land use attorney and voice board member. I love Voice of San Diego because it does great investigative journalism. Voice takes difficult issues and they break it down into easily digestible pieces of information. If you want good information, you have to pay for it. I give because I want good local coverage of issues that are important to me. 